Hi, this is Darcy Miller, Editorial Director of Martha Stewart Weddings, and you're listening to Wedding Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Masters. I'm Robert Allen. Today's show, we've got a very special master. And I know that uh, for our regular listeners who are, or listen to our programming and know what we do on Meet the Masters, you know, it's all about the wedding and it's all about the cake and the gown and the music. But today we're going to shift gears a little bit because Holly and I in doing research uh, for the show, uh, you know, we always come across some, some great guests and great contacts. And when we were put in touch with our guest today, uh, we knew that it was someone that we needed to bring into the fold of Meet the Masters. So our guest today on the show is Judy Rosenthal, who is a Senior Financial Advisor at Ameriprise Financial. Judy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you know, as I said, when we talk about weddings, we think about the wedding stuff. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we started to record about the fact that when money becomes part of the discussion, it's usually in an argument or you're spending too much, you're spending too little kind of a thing. And what we're going to talk about today is a different approach to money when we're thinking about weddings and its importance. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of all of this, why don't you give our listeners a little sense of your background and what brings you to where we are today? Uh, so I've been an advisor with Ameriprise, formerly known as American Express Financial Advisors, since 1997. And uh, I started my business up in um, Boston and then about five years ago moved to New York. And when I moved to New York, I uh, sort of reinvented myself and decided that I was going to focus on working with women clients on a variety of different financial issues. And I specifically focused on a few um, industries, those being fashion and and media. Um, and. Uh, basically, what I do today is provide um, services that are comprehensive in nature um, and encompass many different areas of financial planning, including, um, you know, many of the life stages that women are going through, starting with, you know, getting their first job and all the way through to, um, sadly, becoming a widow at the later stage of their life and planning for their um, final wishes via estate planning. So, and then everything in between, like their wedding and their first purchase of a home and their saving for the second home and getting married and getting divorced and all the things that happen to, to a woman in her life. And, and certainly a wedding is is, you know, one of those big life stages. I mean, it does kind of change the way you've been living forever. And I think, you know, when we're talking about finances and talking about planning for things, I think couples today that are getting married are coming into it a little bit differently than couples 20 years ago. Couples are, are getting married a little bit later in life. They've established themselves in, in, a, in a career. Um, you know, they've already started their way down that financial path. And then here it is. You're trying to bring these two paths together uh, in such a way that makes sense, that, that, that keeps people comfortable with the situation. So when we're thinking about financial planning, and, and I kind of know the answer to this question, when should a couple consider talking to someone like you um, in, in this whole process? Do they wait till they're married? Do they do it before they're married? When do you think uh, a couple should be looking for assistance here? Well, first let me start by saying that if we're talking about a couple who is established in some way, in other words, if they're coming into the marriage with their own savings, their own career, 
I can give myself as an, exam- as an example. I got married when I was 33 years old, so I had been working since I was, well, 14, but <laughs> really working like since after college. And so, you know, I had a business, I had savings, um, and so I already had a financial advisor before I, I got married. So um, I just want to start by saying if you're a person who's already established in some way, I would hope that you would have gotten advice along the way already prior to getting married. And that's something that, you know, helps people to, you know, sort of be all set, if that's a way of of putting it, to say, you know, all my ducks are already in a row. And I think that can also cut down a lot on the anxiety of having that joint conversation when when it comes to that. But, you know, but you brought up a good point earlier about the fact that, you know, we learn about finances from our parents and we take a lot of the lead from them. So, you know, talk a little bit about how someone can kind of, you know, let's go even further back. You know, when you're a kid, when you get your first babysitting job, you know, you're kind of taught certain things by your parents in terms of what you should do with your money. And it's typically save it, put it in the bank, don't do anything with it. Um, Typically. You know, I mean, unless you've kind of, you know, you've got parents that are savvy enough to kind of school you in that. But a lot of people don't have really very much financial education and how they should go in in, in entering into that. Don't you agree? Right. And I think that in your 20s in particular, um, if you don't have parents or you don't feel comfortable, if you don't have parents who are good role models or you don't have parents you feel comfortable discussing these issues with, then who are you going to talk to? A friend who's your age who knows just as little as you do. Um, So I think that it's uh, very important and crucial in your 20s to have that mentality that you have to seek out the information because no one taught you about how a mutual fund works when you were in high school and right. they didn't teach it to you in college. Right. So you have to find that out for yourself. And whether you buy a book or go online, now there's so many resources on the internet, or you know maybe just try for half an hour, even if you're not interested in it, just to tune into one of the money shows or something just right. to get some kind of, an, of a piece of information. And it may not be appropriate to you know, hire a financial advisor when you're 22 years old. You really have nothing to, you know, too much to talk about at that point. But you have to be proactive and advocate for yourself in gathering the information. Um, you know, maybe you do have a trusted friend, but I would say the point at which you need to hire someone is um, when you start to feel I've, you know, I've accumulated these things. I'm starting to think these accounts in different places. I'm working. I'm contributing to my 401k, and now I have some goals in front of me. Whether I'm getting married tomorrow or not, I have you know ideas about what I want to accomplish for my future, and I really have no idea how to go about doing that. I think I need a roadmap. When that occurs to you, that's when it's time to meet with a financial advisor. And and certainly, I think we can all agree that you know, when that starts to come into mind is when you're talking about, you know, now you're engaged and now, you know, you're going to have to bring this together. And now some of these questions are going to, are going to come upon you. So, um, a couple gets engaged Mm -hmm. and they're, they're starting to plan for the wedding. And the question of, of money, you know, enters into that conversation fairly early. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some recommendations that you would make to a couple who just got engaged and are starting to think about, you know, what do we do? We both have bank accounts. We both have investments. Do all those investments get merged together? Do we keep our separate accounts and then start a new account? What are some of the first steps a couple needs to start to take when they're heading down that path? Well, first of all, I think that every relationship has a money culture. That's what I would say about that. That um, 
And that's been established way before you've gotten engaged, hopefully, <laughs> or you're aware of it before you got engaged. So one of the mistakes I would say that couples can make and that I've met is that they haven't, for, for whatever reason, they've either turned a blind eye or they just haven't tuned in to each other on this issue, maybe because it's uncomfortable. And so um, I'd say the most important thing that a couple has to do is from the minute they first start considering whether they're going to get engaged, before they even get engaged, gather the information in whatever way you can about that person's money personality, if you will. And what you're going to do is you're going to gather all that information, then you're going to ultimately decide you're going to get engaged, and this is going to be the culture of your new family around money. And hopefully that culture is going to be centered around what your financial goals are. And those are going to be very similar and very clear. So you both have an idea about retiring at 55. You'll both have an idea about when you retire that you want to move to Florida. Um, hopefully the goals will not be different. <laughs> but I think it's very important for people who are newly engaged to sit down and really discuss what is it that we're looking to accomplish financially. And are those things the same? And are those things different? I mean, hopefully they really had that conversation before they were engaged. Right. But I think from the day from day one, from the first date, you're gathering information about that person and their money personality. Whether that who paid at the first date, or um, whether they showed up to the first date with a really expensive handbag and said, you know, I work at a job that you sort of know makes not that much money to afford that handbag. That's a message. So, in other words, always be looking for the red flags and the signs. So you're gathering up the information when it comes to making a decision about getting married to somebody, you really know them that way also. I think people think, well, I have to really know them and trust them, but for whatever reason, they seem to stay away from that M word, you know, like they just don't want to talk about money. Right. Well, so, there are certain things, you know, that are, are somewhat taboo mm -hmm. in a relationship that couples, you know, avoid and don't want to talk about, but are so important. You know, you, you talk about certainly religion and how you might want to raise your children and, and mm -hmm. where you might want to live, yet that core component mm -hmm. of how you spend or how you don't spend, because that's what we're talking about when it comes to when you're talking about money personalities, you know, so our listeners understand, you know, if someone, you know, spends every dime that comes in from their paycheck, you know, that says something about how they're going to, because things obviously, and we'll let, you know, being all married people in the room right now, <laughs> you know, we'll tell you things don't change that drastically. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone is like that, you know, when you meet them, chances are they're going to be like that, you know, throughout. So either you, you, you want to try to modify some of that behavior or there are some things that you're just going to have to accept mm -hmm. from your partner in, in doing that. So, you know, it's very interesting when you say that to start keying in on some of the, the money issues mm -hmm. uh, beyond you know, what you, you love about them and their personality. You have to have an understanding of that Absolutely. as well. And even your first visit to their parents' house gives you information about their money past and their kind of their money upbringing, if you will. So, I mean, you can put it together for yourself logically what seems like someone, if you know what they do for a living, for example, then you sort of know what they can afford and what they can't afford. And you can tell before they show you their bank statement whether they're a saver or a spender. That's just something really simple that you can observe. So, But I think when it comes to that sort of merging concept that you're talking about, or in our um, Ameriprise study, we call it blending finances, um, however you want to call it, I think that um, when it starts to become difficult, if, 
if you're ha- trying to have a conversation with your newly your new fiance and you're trying to talk about a financial goal or about you know or you have an idea that you should meet with someone about that brokerage account to talk about how it's invested and the other person doesn't feel that way or if you find that you can't even get to that part of the conversation because all you're talking about are daily expenses and you're just stuck there and you can't move on to the bigger picture I think that is the um, the time when someone needs to say, we got to go meet with somebody because we need a mediator, we need a third party, we need someone to help us to facilitate this communication because it's not working. Right. And, and couples shouldn't look at that as a bad thing. No. That's a good thing. I mean, to go to someone like you or someone on your team is is a good thing. I think it, it can only help the situation. It's certainly not going to make the situation any worse. It's going to make things clearer, and it, it'll probably alleviate a lot of that stress mm-hmm. that you're already feeling in the planning process to have someone who knows, who understands what you're going through that can uh, suggest what, what you may do to alleviate a little bit of that. You know, in reading um, this, that you put together this this study, um, there were some very interesting statistics that came up. And, and one of the things that kind of caught my eye when you talk about risk and being risky, that men are much more likely to take some financial risks than women. Talk a little bit about that. One of the things that I find in my practice is that as a society, we have certain, um, uh, there's a certain rigidity, I guess, around roles in society. What does the woman do? What does the man do? And even though we want to say, you know, we've been through the women's movement and, um, you know, we're the next generation after the women's movement, uh, you know, so someone like, like myself who considers herself to be sort of liberated, you know, um, might meet somebody and, can't, and a, a woman and think, I can't believe she doesn't, you know, I, I'm judging her. I can't believe that she just lets her husband take care of everything, right? So, but I think it's you have to be very careful to say put labels on dick people. So, uh, men are more risky than women. Some are, but I think some some women are more risky than men. So, I think risk tolerance though is a very good um, uh, topic to discuss in, amongst a couple. So, because there may be a difference in the risk tolerance, right? But meeting with a financial planner means getting a broad perspective on what is going to be necessary in terms of investment risk in order to achieve financial goals. So let me give you an example. Let's say the goal is uh, that in five years they want to purchase, this couple wants to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. So they're saving, 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 and they, they only know they can save as much as they can out of their paychecks. And based on the current expenses that they have, you know, this is what's left over. So that's basically a fixed amount that they know they have every month to save for that goal in five years. What's the next decision is where to invest that money or if you should invest that money. And so you're dealing with a time frame, a set time frame. And then there's a simple calculation that I would put together that set, that basically says, if this is how much you have to save and this is what the time frame is, here's how much interest you need to make on that investment. And since we know it's a time frame of five years, if the calculation turns out that you need 15% on the money for the, every year for five years, it's not realistic. There's no way you're going to get that. Right. So now you have to say, well, what am I going to do with that? Do I have any more money I can save? No. Well, then I'm going to have to not do it in five years. Right. You'll have to right? go out a little bit longer. But it's very important to be aware of, let's say it came out to something a little more reasonable, like 6%. Now, to get 6% in today's environment, 
it means you can't put it in a savings account in the bank. It means right. you have to do something with it that's going to get you the 6% for the next, hopefully, for the next five years. Right. That becomes a discussion now about what are you comfortable with, uh, fiancé, male fiancé, and what are you comfortable with, female fiancé. And you have to talk about the risk tolerance. And if one person says, no way, I can't risk it, I can't stand to lose money, I have to just put it in the bank, and the other person says, no, let it ride, I'll take it to Vegas, you know, you have to come to a compromise. And that's where a financial advisor can be very helpful. To first bring the perspective to say, what is it that you need to earn on this money in order to reach your financial goals? So it's not just save as much money as I can and make as much interest as I can. It's what do exactly what do I need to reach that goal? That so it's almost out. it's almost backing into it in a sense that you really, you know, but it, it's so interesting because that's not the typical philosophy mm-hmm. when it comes to money for people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, let's, let's do this now and then we'll see what we can do at the end. But what you're saying is you set those goals, you find out what you you know, where your starting point and where your end point is, and then someone like you can create that strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how do we achieve that? Mm-hmm. You know, which is really not traditional thinking, I think, for a lot of people mm-hmm. when it comes to finances. Well, and they can't do it on their own. I mean, that's, I said simple calculation, but I meant simple for me, not simple for them. Right. Right. So um, it's it's not something that people can generally figure out, maybe they don't think that way, but then when it comes to, maybe if they even do think that way, what are the tools they have to be able to calculate that, and what is their understanding of different investment vehicles that will actually plug into the scenario that they can that they can use? So that's why I think it becomes very valuable to have help from a financial planner, um, because not only will they look at you know, the goal, that goal that you're discussing, but also how does it fit into the whole picture of other things that you want to accomplish? The house is not the only thing you're going to do in your whole life right. financially, right. so it has to fit into the whole picture also. Right. So just bringing that perspective, I think, can be very helpful to a couple. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, just the fact that the wedding planning has got to be part of that plan also. Sure. You know, uh, you know, I'm thinking, and as we're talking, it's like it almost makes sense, and I don't know if our couples will listen to this Advice, but it almost makes sense that before you even start talking about a wedding budget, you know, talking, thinking about that, the couple is going to be paying for most of this. It's a different story if parents are going to to, right. to be paying, but certainly if a couple is paying for a large part of their own wedding, it really makes sense to kind of say, "Oh, okay, let's back up here. Let's take a couple of weeks and figure out our big picture. Mm-hmm. What are our plans? Mm-hmm. You know, this is one event in our lives. Yes, do we want a home? Do we want to move? We're going to have children. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things need to really be discussed even before you set out to spend 20 or 30 or 50 or 100,000 mm-hmm. dollars on a wedding. Mm-hmm. That that needs to be part of of the plan." Oh, I agree totally. I I think that um um, that wedding planning is um, very loaded, you know, <laughs> with emotions, with um, just, it's just your dream and your dream coming true. And, you know, it, you can get very, very caught up in, in all of that. Oh, yeah. um, so maybe this is a reason why some people would not meet with a financial planner before they plan their wedding, <laughs> because they rather, they just would rather avoid it because they don't want to know what the real picture is. But, I guess, you know, there's sort of the, there's to every decision, there's the two sides, financial decision, there's two sides. There's the emotional side and there's like the logical side, right? right? right. There's reality and there's fiction, right? So I think that um, for clients who are couples who I've met before, they've actually developed the budget, which generally is not the case. They don't generally meet with me before. 
I'm usually cleaning up the mess after, right? <laughs> um, but if they do, then one of the things that we're going to discuss or we would discuss is if I spend $100,000 on my wedding, then I can't buy a house until 15 years instead of the five right. years I said. Right. What are the consequences of that expense? In other words, what do I give up down the road because I spent this money? Or what do I not give up? In other words... If I cut my budget from 100 to 50, what does that mean to me? Other than that I can't have the flowers that I wanted and other than the fact that I can't get the dress that was 10,000, I can only get the dress that was 2,000. So, in other words, not the consequences of what you gave up for the wedding, but what are the long-term consequences or what are the instead of thinking about it as concepts, uh consequences putting it into the positive, what do I get in my future? How much better off am I in the future if I spend less on this wedding? Yeah. What kind of a long-term positive impact could it have? Right. Instead of looking at less. what you're not going to have yeah. for this moment, right. you know, what can you have in 10 years? Right. That, you know, that'll be a big difference. Now, couples argue a lot about money, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't think that ever stops. You know, once you get married, there's always arguments and inevitably, you know, a lot of the times it's tied to money. And, you know, what are some of the ways, in, you know, you've seen couples have disagreements in whether it be the the overall philosophy of of how they handle their finances but how you know how can you help to resolve some of those arguments some of those difficulties because i'm sure that a lot of them are the same the, you know young couples starting out tend to have the same difficulties across the board you know there are always variations but you know some of the core things that happen how do couples deal with that, those problems, those arguments? Well, I think the major focus generally of arguments, quote-unquote, has to do with household expenses, daily expenses. Um, so I find, generally speaking, when people get married, people get engaged and they decide they're going to be married, they don't disagree on long-term goals. They they have the same ideas about what they want for the future. They already discussed they want to have children there's not a, they're not at odds on their wedding day about whether they want to have children, right? They either decided they don't or they do. Um, so they know they're going to be planning for college, and they know they're going to retire, and those things they pretty much agree. But where they generally get caught up, and sometimes this can prevent them from even doing the proper planning for those future goals that they agreed so well on, um, is on the day-to-day expenses. So one suggestion that I have made to several couples that I've met with um, is to sort of take away the the noise about the um, daily expenses. By having a financial plan in place, you know how much money is going to be required on an annual, monthly and annual basis to accomplish your long-term goals. That means everything else is free, mm. right? So if you have that in place, there ought to be no argument about what gets spent other than that. So if you've sat down with a financial advisor, which hopefully you have, and you've outlined, these are three financial goals in front of us, buy a home, educate two children and retire at 60 years old and you know that on an annual or monthly basis out of your salary this is how much you have to set aside and you're paying yourself first and you're set up to to make those payments and you're committed to that and you've you've agreed on it then whatever's in the paycheck that's left over is free you can have free reign right right money to play with and money once to it's have fun right. right and once it's spent it's spent right. but the bottom line is you've already paid yourself first so the rest is free so that that can take away a lot of the strain, 
right? Because generally when someone of the two is saying you're spending too much money, is accusing the other one of spending too much money, or is picking apart, you know, um, what they came home with in the shopping bag, mm. or like looking at the receipt, or, you know, saying you shouldn't have bought, tro-. I had somebody here once saying, um, you shouldn't buy Tropicana orange juice, you could have bought store brand. Like he was arguing with her about how much she spent on the orange juice. Mm. Was that the real issue? No. He was anxious they weren't saving enough money for retirement. That's what he was anxious about. How did it manifest itself in his communication? You're spending too much money on Tropicana orange juice. And you should have bought Christidis brand or whatever it was. Right. You know, so I think that um, having a financial plan is one way to solve or to take away some of the anxiety so that you don't have these sort of meaningless conversations and, and bickering about expenses. Another thing to, that I have suggested is that people, once they have the financial plan in place, that if it makes them more comfortable and if it, it cuts down on the, the, uh, the arguments, to keep separate checking accounts. Right. And like I said, once and it's for the person who's the, the, the picker. You know, there's the one person who's the picker. And for the person who's the picker, if they can be con- convinced that, look, this is, we're saving this much money, here's the deal. We're going to have separate checking accounts and there's no audit. Right? Because we met with Judy, and this is what she advised, and we're doing it, so there's no audit. We're going to have a no audit policy. And I'm going to have my checking account, and you're going to have your checking (laughs) account, and we're going to have a joint checking account to pay monthly expenses that are joint. Right. And we could talk about how people figure out what to put into that account. But whatever's in my account, I spend, and you can't see a receipt, and you can't look at the shopping bag, and that's it. And it just, it really, it really helps people. Yeah, and I would imagine that diffuses a lot of that anxiety because it's planned for mm-hmm. it's it's all in that that bigger picture mm-hmm. so there's you don't have to be worrying about it because you know there's enough to worry about certainly uh in life and if you can alleviate some of that then you know that would be terrific now i always had a question in, in terms of how people save and what they save for and what they work towards in their finances when when you look at the big picture for a couple What's your opinion or what's your advice in terms of when you're saving, and let's use that word saving, for your kid's education versus your retirement, and there's not enough money to really kind of fund both, Mm -hmm. what should couples be, be doing? Should they be worrying about their children's college education or should they be worrying more about their retirement? Well, I'll give an example of a woman who I recently was working with who um, I would say put her children first at all turns in the road. Um, They had, you know, the best summer camp and the SAT prep course and I can't even, I mean, everything they asked for after school activities, everything they wanted to do, she never said no. Now, I could get into the psychology of why that was, but I won't because I'm a financial advisor and mm-hmm. not a therapist. But um, I sort of gathered why she did that. And I met her at the age of 55 years old saying, my kids are leaving and I have no money for retirement. And it was sad because when we sat there and tried to calculate what would she, how long would she need to work, it was a lot longer than she had expected. Right. Like she didn't know the math was going to come out quite the sure. way the math came out. So um, what I try to help people to do is create a realistic picture that, um, you know, is within their means. Help them to say, what is within my means about 
for their financial goals. So maybe you can't do it all. In other words, something has to give, right? Maybe you can't retire at 55 and send two children to private colleges and buy a really expensive house in the suburbs. Maybe you can't do it all. So then what are you willing to back off of? If your child comes to you at the age of 18 and says, I want to go to this really expensive private school, and because you've been saving for a retirement, you only can offer half of that college education. How's that going to make you feel? And if you say, horrible, I can't hack it, I'll just die if I can't give my... Well, then you know that's a really important thing and you can't give up on that. So it's there's a there's a... A term we use a lot called the acid test on goals. You know, so when you're discussing the goal, you know, how does it make you feel in your stomach if you can't do something? Right. And if it's really, really bad, then you know that's a bigger priority than the retirement. So that person, that example, maybe they say, well, then I can't retire at 55. I can only retire at 65. But it means my kid. I'm never going to say no to my kid about college. So it's it's how your values come into it, and you've got to you're going to have to make choices in most cases. Most people cannot afford to do all the things that they really say in the beginning of the meeting they want to do. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how you talk about that. And, and, and certainly for me, I don't think of financial planning as an emotional experience. But as you're yes. talking about all of these things, it really is so much more emotional, mm-hmm. I think, than most people really give it credit for. Mm-hmm. That it, it is almost all based on emotion and desires and what will make you feel good inside, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and it's different for everybody. Everyone has their own barometer when it comes to, to finances. I and think. I think that one of the things that my firm does, which is really unique in the industry, that and one of the reasons that I really appreciate being associated with this firm, is that we start with the goals first. So, in other words, you can come in for your first meeting with a pile of information. I have three 401k accounts from past employers. I have two brokerage accounts, six banks accounts, and a couple CDs over here and over there. And... I own this apartment in the city, and, like, you have a stack of all your stuff. And around this time of the year, it's already prepared because you're going to your accountant anyway. So you bring in this bag, and you say, I took this to my accountant last week. Now, here, you look at it. (laughs) And in my experience, or at least in my practice, I take that bag, I put it to the side, and I say, that's for later. First thing we have to talk about are your goals. And we have um, an amazing tool at Ameriprise called the Dream Book. I hope you've heard of it, if not. Anyone can check it out on Ameriprise.com or order a free copy. And um, it's a it's like basically a journal to work through your financial goals. So at our firm, there's a culture of starting with the goals and the dreams first. And I think that's very unique in the industry, and I think that that is where it's at in the conversation about financial planning. Not that the other things are not important. Of course, then it has to come down to what do I have in place now? What is my salary? How much can I save? Of course, there are going to be you know, details and logistics and there's the reality of the situation, but it has to start with the the conversation about what are your priorities, what are your goals, and what are your dreams. Otherwise, there's really no way to bring perspective to the planning process, in my opinion. Right. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, if you were to decide to go on vacation and not figure out where you were going, just getting in the car and just driving somewhere and seeing where you end up. Exactly. You know, you really do have to pick a start point and you have to pick an end point and then the 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 trick is find the road right. to get to that endpoint is really what we're what we're talking about now a couple who's been listening to us and and realizes that that they do need this assistance um 
how do you figure out like what does this cost a couple? Is it based on a, a flat fee? Is it based on you know the number of times you would meet with them? You know how is that that figured out? Um, well, someone hiring a financial advisor should expect to pay the financial advisor. So there's no free lunch, and right. you get what you pay for. That's right. the first thing I want to say. So, um, uh, but I think again, my firm is unique in that we offer. Um, flexibility in the way that we work with our clients. So um, the most important thing is the client first. So what is it that the client needs and can I help the client? And if I can, how will I help them and what will it cost? So um, it has to be valuable to the client and also the advisor needs to be paid a fair wage for what they're doing, sure. like the service they're providing. So I would say generally um, people pay a combination of a fee for service, which is for the advisor's time to provide them with annual advice. Mm -hmm. Um, And generally, our clients retain us on an annual basis for service. So maybe one year, it looks like developing the initial financial plan and working through all the steps and all the goals and maybe moving some accounts around. And there's a lot of sort of stuff to get organized in the first year. Maybe the second year... They have a child, and now there's a whole new discussion to be having. So, in other words, things change in people's lives. Jobs change. Their family situation changes. Their mother gets sick and needs to go into a nursing home, whatever it is. So, generally, people retain us for annual financial planning services. And as well, we're a full-service brokerage firm, so we also manage um, clients' accounts. Mm -hmm. So, usually, it's a combination of those two things, and in terms of what it costs... It all has to do with, you know, what you need. So if you're really complicated, then it'll be more expensive. And if it's really simple, then it won't be as much. So so for for couples starting out, um, you know, it's it's based on what their needs are. Absolutely. You know, it's not that they're not going to be charged for something that they don't necessarily need. That's part of the advisor. And I think it's important. You bring up an important point about how it really becomes a relationship. It's mm-hmm. not like you're coming in for one or two quick fixes. It no. doesn't work that way. It's, you know, when you set out a plan, you need someone like yourself to help keep you on track, right. to, you know, to advise you. I mean, that's what it's all about, to make sure that you're making the right decisions. Um, and I think having someone that you can turn to for different things as the life stages change, I think is just in- incredibly uh, valuable. So um, hopefully our listeners um, we'll take our advice and and uh, look to someone like yourself mm-hmm. uh, to help them. Um, just to let everyone know, we will have uh, links uh, in our show notes um, to uh, to Ameriprise and and how people can uh, contact you. We'll have all of your your information there. Um, I, I think it, it this is something that couples really need to think about. This is uh, you know the wedding. Uh, is just the start of things and, and really getting off on the right foot on all levels, whether it be for the wedding itself or your relationship or your financial relationship, I think is incredibly port- important to uh, ultimately a successful marriage and a successful relationship. So I, I appreciate your time and in, in sharing with, with our listeners uh, your expertise. I think it was really very, very helpful. Thank you for having me. If anyone has any questions for us, for Judy, if you have uh a specific financial question that we could possibly pass along can reach us via email. Our email address is feedback at the WPN.com. That's feedback at T-H-E-W-P-N.com. Or you can always call our listener hotline, which is 800-882-1259. 
We've been chatting on this Meet the Masters with Judy Rosenthal, who's a senior financial advisor for Ameriprise Financial. Judy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.